Well, good evening. Like Pastor Luke said, we'll be um, continuing our study in the, the 1689 Confession of Faith, and we will be in Chapter 17. It is the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. And we'll be doing that by looking at five different headings. Heading number one, once in Christ, always in Christ. Number two, kept by God. Number three, God's persevering power. Number four, what about our our remaining sin? And number five, the love of Christ. And that is all there on your handout there, your bulletin, if you have that. Okay, number one, once in Christ, always in Christ. And if you look back there at the uh, handout, I'm going to go ahead and read a couple verses of that, I'm sorry, a couple sentences, the first two sentences of the paragraph one of 17. It says, those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and to whom he has given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. They shall certainly persevere in that state to the end and be eternally saved. So when fallen man places his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, at that very moment he is redeemed, he is regenerated, and in the great courtroom of God he is declared innocent, not guilty. He is saved. The Christian does not fall in and out of salvation. We did not contribute anything to our salvation. We did not save ourselves. God is the one that saved us. That's why we cannot lose our salvation, those that are in Christ. It is God that takes us all the way through and preserves us to the end. It is a sure thing because it is based on another's merit, the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it was up to us, we would fall away every moment. But it is God who saved us, and it is the work that Jesus Christ did and completed on our behalf. John 19.30 says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And that word is what it is. Finished, complete, done. Satisfied God's wrath completely on the behalf of his people. So in Romans chapter 8, we have one of the most powerful sections of Scripture that speak and explain a lot, uh, has a lot to do with the perseverance of the saints. God's preserving work from the beginning all the way to the end of the life of the believer, all the way from when God calls that individual all the way to glorification. So if you, if you have your Bibles, if you please turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll be referring back to Romans chapter 8 quite a bit this evening. And Romans chapter 8, I will start in verse 29, and I will read 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Those that God predestined before the foundation of the world, those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life, he will also, in his perfect timing, in, the, in, the, in time, he calls those, those people are born into this world, and then he calls them by name. He calls his sheep, and then those that he calls, 
he justifies. If we just talked about justification, God saves them, declares them innocent before them. And those that are justified, he then also glorified. And this here, in this, in this section of Scripture, in Romans chapter 8, it is spoken as of past tense, as if it has already happened. Because the way that God works, when God does something and plans something, as it, it's as if it already has happened, because God cannot lie. And the way God sees things, it's as this one continuous thing. It's not as we see the future. So those who have been predestined will be glorified. They will make it to the end because God is the one who predestined them onto glory. He predestines them, he calls them, he justifies them, and he brings them home to glory in the final end. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you've seen in movies or TV shows or read books, you'll be familiar with um, a signet ring that a king would wear. And a king would take that signet ring and he would dip it in wax and he would use it to seal letters or write decrees. It was his signature or to write laws. And it was, it was, everyone would know that it came from the king. It was his seal. Well, that's exactly what God does with us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that he would send the helper before he, when he was talking to the disciples, God has sealed us, given us his promise, it, like a down payment, as it were, to know where, who you are in Christ and that you will make it to the end. He gives you his spirit. All right, heading number two, kept by God. And if you will look there back at Romans 8, I will read verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So there in the... Um, the last part of verse 31, it says, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, we read these sections of scripture as Christians, we're, no, we're, we're so used to them and familiar with them that we pass by and we miss the, the incredible things that are being said. First of all, if God, we got to stop there. God, we got to ask ourselves, who is God? And sometimes as Christians, we, we have a very small view of who God is. But when we begin to understand the God that we're talking about is the creator of the universe, the one that spoke all things into existence, the one who is sovereign over all things, then we come to a passage like this and it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the simple answer is if we understand who God is, nobody can be against us. This is God who puts a decree into motion and no one can state his hand and tell him to stop. This is God. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There's two things we could take away from this section here. First of all, who is his son? The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the one that God created all things for. The earth, the universe, you and I were created for the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave him for 
us. Not only did he give him for us, but because we're in the Son, and the Son represents... See, the Son, Jesus Christ is God's Son. He receives the inheritance. He's the firstborn Son. If you're in Christ, you also receive that inheritance. It is a sure thing. Those that God calls are in the Son, and they receive all things. That's what's being said here. And the idea is, as the inheritance, because you are a son and daughter of the king, you receive all things in Christ. You receive the inheritance, which is eternal life with God. You see, when you're called by God, you've been predestined and called and justified, you will make it to glory because these are the promises that God gives. They're not contingent on anything. He says that you will receive all things. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? So if God is the judge and the executioner and he declared you justified in his courtroom, who can say that you're guilty? How can you fall away from him if you're in Christ? The answer is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Nobody. This is the way the Apostle Paul is asking the question. He knows the answer. He wants us to think. Nobody. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he. Who is Christ Jesus? Again, the one who sits upon the throne that all, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to the Son. He's the one that says what happens and if he's the one that justifies and condemns, then there's no way that we lose our salvation. He who died, yes, rather he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Remembering who Jesus Christ is, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the great sovereign one who sits on the throne and at the right hand of God. We must have a correct understanding of God. That is one of the big things that lack in many Christians today. We have a very small view of God. If we have a very small view of God, we're going to have little faith and little hope. When we have a really a correct view of God, it changes everything in our life. How we view work, how we view family, how we view our church life, how we view trials, adversity. Everything changes in our view of God. Salvation. Every, the way that we think of things. <clears throat> I, would, I would recommend, if you have not done this before, well, you know, we have our book studies on Sunday. It's, that book is about the attributes of God and then teaches us how to live according to those attributes of God and what we know about God. But I would say to do a word study of the Bible, search in the Bible and see, go everywhere it speaks of God and the character of God and study that for about a year. And I guarantee you, your thought life of all things will totally change because of your view of God will change. It's like, it's like a massive storm is headed your way and there is two shelters on the surface. One shelter is built out of PVC conduit and covered with plastic tarps. Okay? Not very strong. And then the other shelter is encased with three feet of concrete all the way around the walls, all the way on the top, and then a foundation 15 feet down on the ground and then even under that. And then on top of that encased with two more feet of stainless steel metal all the way around the top, all the way down the bottom, and all the way uh, on, yeah, all down the bottom. And when this storm comes, we know that this, 
shelter over here, PVC, is gone, right? It's, it's going to be wiped off the face of the earth. But this storm shelter over here, because it's fortified, you won't even be able to hear the wind or feel any effects from the storm. In that same way, when we have a correct understanding of who God is, we will remember who we're in, and when the storms of life come, they will not touch you. It doesn't mean that they're not real and you don't feel certain things, but the point is your faith is solid and firm on God because of the foundation. Isaac Watts' great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal Ill, Ill, ills prevailing. A mighty fortress is our God. <clears throat> if you grab your hand out there again, um, keeping in paragraph one, towards the, towards the middle there, a little bit lower, I'm going to start. It says, because, I'm going to read that to the end of that um, paragraph. Because of unbelief and the temptation of Satan, the felt experience and sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. However, God is still the same, and Christians shall surely be kept by the power of God for final and complete salvation. Then they shall enjoy their purchased possession, having been engraved upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. <clears throat> the God who keeps us is eternal, unchangeable, all-wise, all-knowing, and all-powerful. We are in God's hands. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Everyone knows this section of Scripture. It's, it's very well known. This is the, um, the good shepherd in John chapter 10. So we start there in the beginning of 27. He says, my sheep. And the reminder again, who is saying this? The good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And we know Jesus never loses any of his sheep. He came from heaven to earth to gather his sheep. His people, my sheep. Remember whose sheep those are. Verse 28, I give eternal life to them. That is present tense. I give eternal life to them. If you are one of his sheep, you have eternal life. That doesn't mean that you fall away from grace totally. Never. You're always in the beloved because of what he has done and because of who you belong to. You are, it, you are his sheep. So you have eternal life. It's a fact. It's final. Jesus said it. And they will never perish. These are promises for comfort for the Christian to build our faith and hope in him and the assurance that God gives us um, through his calling and through his word. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We know that hand, right, represents Power, strength, right? It's the grip that has on, um, on the believer. So remember whose hand we're talking about. It's God's hand. And we know that 
God does not have a body like ours, but hand is being represented here so we can understand. So we, Jesus says that we are in his hand, that his sheep are in his hand, and then he goes on. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one could, is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So not only are we in the Father's hand, or the Son's hand, we're also in the Father's hand. So we're covered by the Son, and we're covered by the Father. And not only that, because we've been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it is the triune God that keeps his people to the very end. And it says that there is none greater, that God is greater than all. In order for someone to snatch you out of God's hand, there would have to be somebody greater. And if there was, then God would cease to be God. God is God. No one can snatch you out of the hands of God. That is our eternal security found in God because of who he is. All right, heading number three. God's preserving power. Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Where does the Apostle Paul get his confidence from? Is it in himself and his ability and his studying and his knowledge and what he knows? Not at all. He gets it because he knows who his God is. I am confident of the very thing that he who began a good work in you. Who's the he? God. The Apostle Paul points to who God is. He's confident that God is going to complete the work that he began in you. When God called you out of your sin to himself, he began a work. He began to sanctify you, drawing, him to him, drawing you to himself. And he's going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus, judgment day, when Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom, when Jesus comes to judge the world in righteousness, when Jesus comes back and gathers his sheep, his people back to himself, all the way to the end, he's saying that I'm confident that you will make it to the very end and he will perfect it because of he who is the one who began the work in you. When faced with persecution or trial, we press on to the ultimate prize, remembering who the prize is. That great pearl of great price is Jesus Christ. We look to him when things come our way, persecution or trial, whatever it may be. We're constantly having our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ. It's like Stephen, when he was being stoned to death and he persevered to the very end, he was ignoring all the circumstances around him and he looks up and he sees Christ on the throne. And no one can touch his faith. And he continues to go on, he perseveres to the end, and he becomes a martyr. We can have the same faith that Stephen had because of who our God is. And we look to Christ. That great prize, our great reward is him. God allowed Job to experience some very, very, very difficult trials. We know this. Um, but in those trials, God also showed off his work in the life of Job. Job had his children taken from him. He had his business taken away from him. He had his health taken away from him. And the very person who was supposed to be closest to him in his life, who was to encourage him and to urge him on to look to God in these, these things, his own wife whispered in his ear, curse God and die. And Job kept on persevering. 
not perfectly, but he kept on persevering to the end because of God's grace and his work, God's preserving power in the life of Job. If God is the one who preserves us to the end, then what is our part? What is the part of the life of the Christian if God is the one that preserves us to the very end? Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So last Wednesday, Pastor Luke um, went through the section on good works. And those good works weren't for the unbeliever. Those good works are set aside for the believer. When we're saved, now we, we obey God because we can now. We have true Christian liberty that we are free from sin and enslaved to it. We can now freely worship and praise God and serve him. So God has prepared things for us to do. And wherever we are in life, whatever certain responsibilities you have, all of us are, have a little bit different responsibilities where we are in life. But God commands us to do certain things when we're here. We live out this walk before him, obeying him, just like our Savior did the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep on pursuing him through life's storms, through trials, whatever it may be, day in, day out, no matter what happens. We remember each day we put our two feet on the floor and we move on in serving the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering that this is not our home, that our feet are not cemented here. We're passing through onto glory. And we're inviting others and calling them to repentance as we pass on. <clears throat> we're to be about his business, just like our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to count the cost. We are to remember what we bow the knee to when we surrender to Jesus Christ. We gave up our lives. Our lives no longer belong to ourselves. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we take up our cross daily and we follow after him. And we die to self. This Christian life is not a sprint, it is a marathon. And I'm pretty sure all of us heard analogies like that before. So it's not a sprint, but it is a marathon. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're to run this race with endurance because it's a long race. It's a long race to the finish line. And we run with endurance by the grace of God through the power of his spirit and the word that he has given us. We use the means of grace to continue through this life and as we endure through. Um, if you have ever ran before, track and field, you, you have an understanding between, and a difference between um, a sprint, short distance, or long distance running. In short distance, from the sound of the gun, 50-yard dash, you take off poof, as fast as you can. They give, you give it as everything you have within you. And for a short sprint, you feel pain. It's, it's painful, but you're all the way to the end, and it's over really quick. Now, as opposed to long distance running, 5 miles, 10 miles, 25 miles, your body is falling apart. You're getting a cramp on your side, you're grabbing it, you're holding up your arm to try to breathe and you're trying to live. Your mind's telling you, what are you doing? This is dumb, let's stop. What's the point of this? I'm going to stop at the end of the corner here. Around this corner, I'm going to stop. You're getting sick. You feel like vomiting. It is a struggle and it is a fight to get to the end over and over. Sometimes a Christian life can be that way. And then you throw in a couple hurdles every 2,000 feet. 
right? And it's like a hurdle and a hurdle and a hurdle. Sometimes life comes that way over and over and over again. That looks difficult from the outside. But when your eyes are fixed upon God and you have a right view of who he is, when those hurdles of life come, you can hit them with stride because you're remembering who is sovereign, who's allowing these trials to come in your life, and what he's doing in the testing through those trials and how he's sanctifying them in, as, in them as well. And we can glorify God as we go through those things because we're not going alone. He gave us his spirit. He gave us the people of God, and he gave us his word. And we can endure to the end because God is the one working and preserving us to the end. Okay, heading number four. What about our remaining sin? What about the remaining sin in the Christian life? If you go back to your handout, I'm going to read paragraph number three. I'm going to go back to number two, but let's go ahead and read paragraph number three. Believers may through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalent strength and extent of sinful corruption remaining in them and the neglect of means for their pers preservation fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a, a time. Because of this, they incur, bring upon themselves God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, weakened, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalized, offended, o others and bring temporal judgments, ch chastisings in time, and space upon themselves. Nevertheless, they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. All right. So what was the difference with Judas's betrayal of Jesus and Peter's betrayal of Jesus? We know Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ and gave him up to the Pharisees and to the Roman authorities for 30 pieces of silver. He was a traitor. Peter, boasting in his pride, in his allegiance to Jesus Christ, even though meaning well, denied Jesus three times. Judas went out in remorse, but he hung himself. Peter went out and repentance and wept over his sin and he was restored back to God. Was there something special in Peter that caused him to turn back to God? What was it? If you recall there, Jesus tells Peter in the upper room that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat. And what was Jesus' response after that? What did Jesus say after that? He said, but I Luke twenty two thirty two. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you once have been or when have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The difference between the two is this: Judas was never a lamb of a sheep. Judas was a goat from the beginning, a traitor from the beginning. Jesus did not pray for him. His name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. Peter, on the other hand was a child of God, a sheep, a long-lost sheep, and his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because of that, Jesus prayed for him. And Peter's faith was strengthened, and he returned back to God, turned back to Christ, because Jesus prayed for him. In the same exact way, Jesus prays for our faith. He intercedes for us on our behalf that our faith will not fail. 
even in our sin. Uh, King David, we know his grief is sin, right? He sinned with Bathsheba, and then because of his sin, on top of sin, he mur- had uh, Uriah murdered to cover up his sin. And Peter, uh, David writes here in Psalms 32, 3, 4, when he tried to hide his sin from men, he also was foolish and tried to hide his sin and keep it from God. It says this, 32, 3 through 4, Psalms. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings, my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Vitality. Fever heat of summer. I kept silent about my sin. I kept silent about my sin. Because David kept silent about about his sin, because David belonged to the Lord, God's hand was heavy upon him. And that's the same way that God treats us. And if you have walked with Christ for a while, you will understand that. When you didn't confess your sin to God and we kept trying to hide it or act like it wasn't a big deal, we can see God slowly pushing down a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and taking things away, kind of crushing our life, our world, until we turn back until we turn back to him. He does the same thing in us. Praise God that he does that. And I'll get to that right now. 1 Corinthians 11.32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Judas was condemned along with the world. That's why he continued in his his wickedness and his betrayal of Jesus. Peter did not. He was not condemned with the world with the world because God disciplined him. God taught him the lesson that he needed to learn. In the same way, God does the same thing to us. So instead of stiff-arming the discipline of the Lord, we need to welcome it. It is a gift of God, a grace of God to sustain us to the very end, to preserve us to the end. Praise God for his discipline. It's not fun, but praise God that he disciplines us. And all you children who are disciplined by your parents, see it in that way too. Because your parents love you, they discipline you. Because our, par- our Father in heaven disciplines us. All right, when God begins to work in, the life of, in, a life, in our lives, he begins to reveal more sin, right? And we can misunderstand that sometimes. We could take that wrongly because we have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of our sin and a wrong view of um, repentance. And we, get, we go and crawl in a corner and think that nobody else knows what we're going through and again, we're useless to the, the kingdom. I can remember um, times in my life when I struggle with certain sins. And I, I remember thinking and praying, God, if, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't be bitter towards my brothers like this. God, if I, wasn't, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't be jealous towards my brothers. God, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't struggle with this same sin over and over and over again. I repent of it one day, and then the next day I turn back to it again. I repent, and then I turn back to it again. I'm presuming on your grace, God, I must not know you. There's no way that I know you. There's no way I'm a Christian. See, and my struggle was an assurance in the work of God, his redeeming work. The assurance was, am I a Christian? Do I know him? Because if I did, I wouldn't walk in this way. Christians are never to doubt their salvation. But we are to examine ourselves. We're to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. I was doubting my salvation and not looking to God in his work. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 
test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? We're to test ourselves, we're to examine ourselves. You're not to doubt your salvation, but you test yourself and you examine yourself. How do you do that? It's actually pretty easy. It's pretty easy. Do you not know this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? What the Apostle Paul is saying is, do you recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you see a difference from before you profess Christ to now that you do profess Christ? Can you look back at your life and see that there is progress in your life, that you look more like Christ through the sanctifying spirit and his word? Is there a difference? Is there evidence and fruit of the spirit at work within you? When I was struggling with my sin, I remember thinking this, because God would always come and help my thinking. All I knew was this. Every morning that I would wake up, I remembered these things. I still wanted to read his word. I still wanted to pray. I still wanted to be with his people. I still loved his people. I still wanted to hear the preaching of the word. And most of all, I wanted him. I wanted him. I, I didn't care about all the other things in heaven. I wanted Jesus Christ. If I can praise God for all the other things he's going to bless us with, but I wanted Christ. If Christ is there, I wanted him. So if, if those things are true in my life, it has to be God because the unconverted person doesn't think that way. They don't want that. I wanted him, and I wanted to glorify him with my life. See, if you look at your life and examine it, do you recognize that fruit within you? And if you do, then that keeps us from doubting our salvation and having us preoccupied with ourselves and then keeps us serving and, and seeking his face and honoring him with our lives. We're not distracted by Satan and his lies um, that he would speak to us so we would dwell just on our sin. We need to deal with our sin rightly and repentance, but we're not to dwell on it and doubt our salvation and be useful, useless for the kingdom. Assurance does not come from us and our performance and who we are. It comes from God. God is the one who keeps us and preserves us to the very end. It's based upon the character of God. That's where our assurance comes from, God himself. It's not based on how we feel, but on God who is at work in us, his spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. False religions have no assurance. And why do they not have assurance? Because the system that they have created is man-made and it's based upon works. And they constantly try to have to meet these certain standards over and over and over again. And they fail over and over and over again. And if you were to ask a, 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 someone who is involved in a false religion, and you will get, if you've done this before, you ask them, how do you know you'll get to heaven or paradise or wherever they think that they're going? And they'll tell you, I don't know. I, I don't know until I, till the end. I don't know until I die. Why? Because it's based upon them and themselves. That's not Christianity. Christianity is based upon God and the work of Jesus Christ. So our faith is built up and our hope and our assurance is on the work of Christ. Not what you're doing or how you feel. Sometimes we can think like that, like an unbeliever, but we're not to. We're to trust God and his promises and what he's doing in our lives. What about those who seemed to have known the Lord, seemed to have walked with him for a while, even written Christian books? What about those individuals? And then they fall away from grace. So what would look like? 
when you begin to find out and you begin to examine their lives, you can start to see, hey, wait, there was this, this, these type of signs were always there and I didn't notice them. And you begin to talk to some of them or you hear them in their, as they, they boast in their deconstruction from Christianity, you begin to hear what they're saying, like, wait a minute, they don't even understand the gospel. They never even been confronted with the gospel. And sometimes, you know, that is our fault because we allow people in the church and we never present the gospel to them. We never confront them on their sin. We never show them who Christ is. We just sign them up, baptize them, and they become church members. And then they shame the name of Christ when they fall away. They were never Christians. They are called apostates. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Those that, it doesn't mean because someone left your church. What it means is those that fell away from Jesus Christ and now deny him, deny knowing him, they no longer trust in him. That's an apostate. Those who no longer trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And they now deny him. They're apostate. They went out from us, from the church of God, the church of God, yeah, around the world. They went out from us to show that they were not really of us. Praise God. When goats leave the herd, the sheepfold, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. It doesn't mean you don't pray for them and you don't love them and you don't care for them. But at the same time, Praise God. They went out from us, so we're encouraged to see that they went out because they never were of us. Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Every blood-bought sinner in this room will make it to the very end. You will endure to the end because God said you would, and you will be saved. But you still have to endure to the end. Man's responsible, and God is sovereign at the exact same time. We have a responsibility. We can't just sit on our couch and say, all right, take me home to glory. No, we need to be about his business and serving God and being obedient to his commands. Heading number five, the love of Christ. The love of Christ. If you will look back at the handout, I am now going to read paragraph number two of the confession. This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will. It depends on the immutability, unchanging nature of the decree of election, which flows from the the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It also depends, depends on the efficiency, sure effectiveness of the merit, worthiness, and intercession prayers on our behalf of Jesus Christ and the saints' union with him. On the oath of God, on the abiding of his spirit, on the seed of God within them, and on the nature of the covenant of grace, the, the, the certainty and infallibility of the perseverance of the saints arises from all these things. Again, the love of Christ. So if you look back there at Romans 8, I'm going to read verses 34 to the end of the chapter. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. 
we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So at the end of 34, it says, who also intercedes for us. Again, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, who all authority has been given to. He's the one that intercedes for us. Our faith holds firm because our Savior is praying for us to the very end. And the Father answers every prayer from the Son. 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Again, it's another one of those rhetorical questions that it's being asked to help us think. If Christ is the one praying for us, who can separate us from his love? Will tribulation? No. Will distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? Death? No. Verse 37. We overwhelmingly conquer through him. The one that conquered sin, death, the power of hell, and Satan on our behalf. We're in the Son, so we conquer as well through him, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is very wise and wants to get the point across when he brings these truths out, he's making sure you understand it is through him. It is through Christ. It is through he that any of these things are possible. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced. I am convinced. Again, not convinced on his own thinking, but based upon the character of God. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And then there's no other thing he could say. So he just says, any other created thing. He's saying nothing can separate you from the love of God. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God. And again, he ends it with this, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Stop there again. He uses the title Lord. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It's the name that the Father gave to his Son after he defeated death and sin as the great mighty warrior who walks into heaven. And above Jesus is Lord over all. Because Jesus is Lord over all, you will persevere to the end. Everyone here that's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life who has been predestined, has been called, who has been justified, will make it to glory because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done on behalf of his people. I'll end with this. In our modern day hymn, everyone knows it very well, in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. 
No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I will stand. Here in the power of Christ I will stand. Praise God for his preserving grace and the power of the almighty Christ and knowing him. Let's, let's pray. Father God, in, indeed, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace and upon us sinners who did nothing but violate your law and, and act as if you did not even exist, Lord. But, oh God, in your perfect timing, you have called us out of our sin. And now you, you have called your sheep to yourself. You say that, uh, that you love us and that so much so that you gave your son. Oh God, we thank you for your preserving power. Lord, we ask that you would continue that preserving power in our life, that you would continue to mold us into the image of your Son. Lord, not just stopping there, but that you would use us mightily for your glory, that we would be great lights in this world for Christ, that we would go all over this globe preaching his name and his fame. Lord, we just thank you again so much, Lord, for the work of, of your Spirit within us and the power that your Son has conquered over sin. Lord, we just thank you for all that you do, for your great grace and for your mercy. And we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.